0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network, and this is your host, David Kunzman, and today we'll be talking with Mary Shannon Codwell about her new book, Devotional Refrains in Medieval Latin Song. Mary is the Assistant Professor of Music at the University of Pennsylvania. She has published in the Journal of the American Musicological Society, Music and Letters, the Journal of the Royal Musical Association. And plain song and medieval music. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we usually like to ask our guests uh, just their basic background and how they came to write their, how, how they came to write their books. So Mary, how did you come to write devotional refrains in medieval land song?
1: Thanks, David. So this book started in my dissertation, um, which I did at the University of Chicago. And in that dissertation, I was really interested in thinking about form, thinking about the relationship of song to culture, to religious practices, to rituals. Um, And once I started thinking past the dissertation, I started to reconceptualize the way in which I was working with this repertoire. And these are the repertoire that I work with in this book are all primarily Latin devotional songs, songs that were sung with religious uh, intent, um, songs that all have refrains, and songs that were almost all uh, written in the language of, of the church, Latin. Um, and so when I started thinking about the book that I really wanted to write about these songs, um, I started to think about the most important ideas that I felt these songs were letting me think about. So ideas of community, of time, of movement, of performance, of uh, inscription and transmission. And so all of these ideas kind of came together um, in what ended up being the the book as it stands now. So it really started in my dissertation stages, but then transformed dramatically over the last um, few years uh, until 2020 when it was finally written. And then it sort of went through all that production uh, stuff during the pandemic, actually.
0: So, I guess just to start out with, just some basic uh, de- definitional questions. Uh, what is a refrain?
1: Sure. So, the refrain is something like what we would call a chorus in contemporary popular music, for instance. It's a portion of text and music that is repeated usually between Um, verses or what we call strophes or stanzas in earlier repertoires. And so it's just that thing that people tend to remember. For example, it's that thing that always comes back that repeats with regularity, with predictability. Um, It it often has the same text and music. Sometimes though, you'll have refrains that might change slightly. You'll hear that sometimes in contemporary music too, where the refrain might change slightly when it comes back later on in a song, but you still recognize it as the same thing. So the The basis of the refrain is this idea in my book of repetition and return, um, and those principles sort of uh, become foundational for the way in which I talk about these songs that have refrains.
0: So, in the in the book, you mentioned that you might be you, you're one of the first scholars that one that centers the frame centers the refrain in, I guess, the analysis or study of medieval lens song what 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 kind of work does that do what sort of lens does that provide into seeing something new that the scholarly community hasn't seen before
1: so to start answering that maybe i'll just say something about latin song in the middle ages more generally um which is a really vast territory there are really hundreds upon hundreds of Latin songs that were written down, often notated with musical notation in medieval Europe and also outside of Europe too. Um, and these songs take a wide variety of forms. Some of them are what we call through composed. There's no repetition structurally or textually throughout the entire thing. Some of them are polyphonic, meaning they have more than one melody, um, that goes simultaneously. Um, and other songs are, uh, devotional, some are secular, some are parodic, so they make fun of someone, some are satire. Um, So there's all sorts of different things that we call Latin song. And so it's a really vast repertoire, a vast territory. And within that, almost a quarter of Latin songs that we have still from the Middle Ages, whether with musical notation or without, have refrains. So that's a pretty significant number of these Latin songs. And so for me, I thought, well, if all of these poets and composers and singers were obviously drawn to the refrain, there must be something about that that is meaningful to them in some way, whether it has to do with, say, performance or um, with some kind of cultural idea that might be connected to the to repetition of certain texts and certain music. And so... For me, the uh, the lens, if you will, of the refrain was a way to think about Latin song from a slightly narrower perspective because it is a really big repertoire. In fact, in my book alone, I talk about, well, I index, I don't talk about every single one, but I in the appendix, there are over 400 songs with refrains. I mean, in dozens and dozens of manuscript sources. So it's a really big repertoire. And so for me, the, the refrain though lets me have access into the ways in which songs may have been used by religious men, women and children in different contexts and for different expressive purposes or to navigate different uh, issues that they may have been facing in their day to day lives. For example, in uh, chapter one, I talk a lot about the ways in which refrains and songs that have refrains helped people navigate different understandings of time. So in the Middle Ages, there was calendrical time. So the calendar as we understand it today, there was also religious or liturgical time, the sequence of feast days that the church celebrates. Um, And all these different understandings of time sometimes conflicted. Sometimes they were complementary, but often they conflicted. And so I show how song and especially the refrain served as kind of a pivot that allowed singers and listeners to understand single moments in the year as temporally plural, but complementary. And so that's one example of the ways in which I think the refrain offers us a sort of a new perspective into the cultural role of Latin song in medieval Europe.
0: And did the refrain have a different function between uh, sacred music and vernacular music?
1: Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes, but it's more complex than that. So. Not all Latin songs are devotional, so I'll say that to begin with lots of Latin songs are also secular, although devotional songs are in the majority um, and not all vernacular songs are secular so that that is a that sort of a duality is not doesn't play out so we can have vernacular songs that are devotional, praising saints or the Virgin Mary or what have you um, and in terms of how the refrain functions then in Latin song versus vernacular song, there is some overlap. And so one of the things I get at in my book, especially the last chapter, is when we have Latin songs that are actually contrafacts of vernacular refrain songs. And so what I mean by contrafact is when a composer or poet takes a pre-existing song, in this case a vernacular song, and its refrain, and they actually set a new Latin text to that same melody and the same form. So these contrafacts we find in the dozens, actually, in a few different manuscripts. And so I talk a little bit in that chapter about how language functions here and specifically the differences between what's going on in vernacular refrain songs versus what's going on in Latin refrain songs. I should also say that in the vernacular tradition and specifically in the old French song tradition, there is something that we call a refrain that is actually its own distinct kind of genre it's these little uh, sections of text, short sections of text and sometimes also music that are cited and um, used in a bunch of different genres, like the motet, like uh, in chanson, in narratives. And so that's a very specific use of, of refrain that is very different than what I look at in my book, which is very much based on this idea of a refrain that repeats structurally within a single song. So there is that more niche understanding of the refrain in medieval song repertoires, but that's not really what I'm engaging with in the book.
0: Another thing that you engage in the book a lot is manuscript traditions. Uh, can you just tell me the process? And um, did you did you work with the manuscripts directly, or did you deal with printed texts that copied the manuscripts? Like, what was the process?
1: So all of those things. Uh, a lot of the manuscripts I worked with. Well, I worked with dozens and dozens. So not I did not get to see all of them in person. Unfortunately, that would have taken. Many more years than I had available to me to do that. Um, I did work in person with many of the sources that I come back to repeatedly. So that would be something like uh, what's called the Florence Manuscript or F, um, which is was copied in mid-13th century Paris. Another one is uh, the Red Book of Osory, um, which is now in Dublin. So some of the sources like that that are that transmit a greater number of songs that I return to again and again. Those are sources that i actually did work with in person as well as with uh, digital images of those sources a lot of the sources that may have had only one or two songs most of those i consulted uh, what we call digital facsimiles of um, so those are you know high quality digital images of these medieval sources which thankfully libraries um, and archives uh, and worldwide actually have been really great even before the pandemic about digitizing these sources and making them available to scholars um, and so I've really benefited from that. And since the pandemic, uh, these libraries and archives have been even more aggressive about getting their materials online and accessible to scholars across the world, because of course, uh, travel was greatly impeded and, and nobody was really able to get to some of these places. So those that's how I worked with the manuscripts, a combination of in-person and using digital facsimiles. And then I also used, um, I benefited greatly from modern catalogs and editions. They aren't. None of them are comprehensive. So I obviously, you know, my my appendix, for example, includes works that don't appear in other uh, uh, catalogs or editions or anywhere else. Um, and some of the some of the pieces I work with are sort of never have never been studied before or transcribed before. Um, but obviously, I'm building on scholarship from almost a hundred years. Um, of musicologists and philologists and literary scholars who have worked with parts of this repertoire. So uh, one of the biggest um, helps actually in the early stages of the book was an online database uh, called the CPI, um, which is a database run by Mark Everest and Gregorio Bevilacqua out of Southampton. And this is an online database of Latin song. Um, It doesn't include all Latin song from the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance period, but it includes a lot of them and is a really helpful resource. So there's those kind of online resources that have been helpful as well.
0: So I guess my next question is, uh, well, well first, uh, could you explain the notational system that was used in these manuscripts and were they consistent throughout the manuscripts or was notation standardized then? And what was the process of transcribing from uh, medieval neumes, I guess, to modern notation?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. So that gets to a really interesting question. Um, and I'll start by saying that there are two ways in which these songs were written down in the Middle Ages. Um, notated or unnotated. So with musical notation of some kind or without. And I consider both of those forms of transmission to still be song. Um, so I don't assume that just because a song wasn't written down with a melody doesn't mean it's not song. And there are various ways in which scholars historically and, and now think about the ways in which unnotated music might is still musical because it maybe is transmitted with music in another source, or there's some kind of framing context in the manuscript that suggests that it was understood as song or musical. Um, So I have those two types of sources that I worked with. So for the sources with musical notation, you're right that this is not a notational system that would look familiar to someone who maybe grew up learning how to play piano and plays, you know, Mozart or Beethoven or whatever. Um, this is a notational system that sometimes is um, extremely different from what uh, common practice period music uses. Uh, we have a lot of new notations, which are uh, sort of scribal um, indications of melodic contour and shape, but don't really tell us precise pitches, for example. Um, but in this repertoire, as I said, there's over 400 songs some of the songs are notated with this very imprecise descriptive kind of notation where you can't you can't necessarily always transcribe it it's very imprecise in terms of pitch <clears throat> excuse me and then we also have uh, notational systems that develop that use for example staff lines to indicate pitches and so they can put note shapes on specific lines or spaces much like more uh, contemporary western art music notation And with those sources, you can actually transcribe melodies. So with those sources, I was able to, and and others before me, have been able to to transcribe into modern notation the melodies. Now, what these manuscripts largely don't show is rhythm. So most of the songs that I work with uh, for the book had no explicit rhythmic notation of any kind. So any rhythm that we would ascribe to specific melody and performance would be one that would be done Uh, based on an understanding of how rhythmic principles might have worked. It's not based on what's in the manuscript. Um, They also don't indicate anything like uh, uh, scoring. We don't know who sang it or how many people sang it or if there were instruments. Uh, We also don't have anything like tempo markings or uh, expressive markings. Um, None of those things appear in these sources. So what we basically have is the melody um, and In in some cases we can't even figure out the melody if it's if it's a source that has nooms that we can't transcribe, Um, and most of the most of the music I work with most of the songs are monophonic, meaning they just have one melodic line. But in some cases I also work with polyphonic songs, songs that have more than one melody that uh, that are sung uh, simultaneously. Um, So in my book, most of the transcriptions have. Uh, melod- musical examples that do not have any rhythm indicated and that just show the melodic content, the pitch content of a specific melody or song.
0: And if any of these uh, medieval land songs been recorded, uh, there's usually like an early music uh, program that tries to, I guess, perform these, uh, the, the, these uh, older songs uh, have any of them in the list that you provide in the back of your book been, been recorded?
1: Yes. In fact, one of the most um, gratifying things about doing this project was being able to listen to a lot of the music. Not all. Not all the songs in the appendix have been recorded, but actually a fair number of them have appeared on recordings actually dating back um, to the middle of the 20th century. So there's a, a, a large history a significant history of recording these songs. They're really popular for early music ensembles, especially vocal ensembles, but also instrumental ensembles. Because they're very simple, they're very accessible, they have these refrains that allow for different kinds of performance configurations. Um, they are there uh, a lot of them are for um, specific church seasons like Christmas. Um, so they're really great for concert programming around the holidays, for instance. So these actually there's a surprisingly robust uh, recording tradition for a lot of these songs. Um, and Every year, if you look at programming for early music ensembles, especially in North America and Europe, you'll find some of these songs on their programs. They're often used, and I don't mean this to, to negatively, as sort of filler pieces. They're really great pieces to sort of start a program or end a program. Um, so there's actually a lot out there. You can listen to a lot of this music um, in, in modern recordings.
0: And... Um... If, if uh, instruments are used, what were the typical instruments that might have been used at that time?
1: We don't really have much evidence at all to point to the instrumental performance or realization of these songs. Uh, mo- all of them also have texts, which implies the participation of voices or people singing. Um, so we don't... Generally speaking, I don't talk about instruments in the book because there's just nothing to say about them, um, really. Now, that doesn't mean that instruments weren't possibly part of the performance practice around these songs. Um, there's, uh, there's some excellent performances that you can find um, now online and uh, in recordings where uh, instrumentalists have added instrumental parts to these songs, and um, a great example would be a, a, a group like Concordia and Dawn, who are based in New York, who perform a lot of medieval song and they actually do add instruments to those. But those are um, modern interpretations of what might have been medieval practices. So who knows what kind of instruments might have actually accompanied these songs, if any. I don't have any iconographic evidence to back up the instrumental performance of these songs. I don't have any manuscript evidence either. Um, so whatever we do in modern performance practice with instruments is something that is a more creative uh, interpretation of these songs.
0: And I guess my next question is, um, re- re- refrains were usually used in strophic songs rather than th- th- thorough composed. Uh, are there any examples of refrains being used in thorough comp- composed songs?
1: No. Um, The only place where you might see refrains being used in what we call through-composed songs, songs that don't have any structural repetition to speak of, would be if, if certain refrains are cited. So if they're sort of taken from another place and put into a song but they're not repeated in that song so generally speaking we only really find refrains in strophic songs or songs that have um, a form that's called the rondeau form where you actually return to the refrain several times in the course of just one strophe but for through composed music we generally only see refrains if they're cited or quoted from another place.
0: You talked about a lot of these uh, land songs were used in monastic orders. Uh, was the form was the form different between I guess male monastic orders and female monastic orders? Like, did they did they perform different forms of songs, or were they basically the same?
1: It's a really interesting question, and one that actually hasn't been fully explored yet. This uh, the gender division of Latin song repertoires, if there is any. In the book, I connect the singing of these refrain songs and Latin song more generally to both monastic and clerical communities, so religious communities that are that are both uh, cloistered and more secular, meaning they live in the towns. You know, they're part of a, a civic community, and women who sang Latin songs which we know because female communities would have owned certain manuscripts that I talk about, for example, that the the songs that are in their sources, in sources owned by female monastic communities in particular, some of the songs are actually the very same songs that we also find in manuscripts owned by male monastic or clerical communities. So from sort of the preliminary evidence um, that I've gathered, there's no gender difference in the kind of song that men would have sung versus women. And in fact, I could also include children. Children seem to have been the primary um, uh, focus of a lot of this this stuff too. And they also sang some of the same songs that would have also been performed by adult men and adult women. Um, so in terms of Latin song, there's a lot of continuity. And that makes sense in a way because the language Latin, which was the language of the church. And so it was shared widely, unlike vernaculars, which were obviously specific to certain regions and places. That shared language allowed for the song to be used and copied by lots of different communities, including female communities of religious women.
0: Another thing that you mentioned in the book that I found interesting was uh, The Christmas Carol. Uh, How does The Christmas Carol, I guess, uh, link up with this, I guess, ancient uh, form of song
1: The Crisp's Carol is really interesting. It has its own history, which I'm not a specialist in. But where I see the connection, and this is what I brought up in the conclusion I think you're thinking about, is that a lot of, not a lot, a handful of the songs that I talk about in the book and that are in the appendix actually get transmitted over many, many, many centuries, and they end up appearing either in Latin or in vernacular translation in later song books and carol books. So some of the songs actually have a history that's like 800 years long, where they continue to be sung with very similar melodies um, in different forms, in different languages. And some of these end up as Christmas carols. And so I do see a connection between the kind of seasonal music that we see in the Middle Ages, where we have these Latin songs that were for Christmas, for Easter, for special saints days, and the kind of repertoires of carols that developed in the later Middle Ages and into a more contemporary period, into the early modern period and beyond. Um, But the difference is that Christmas carols, generally developed specifically around Christmas whereas a lot of this earlier repertoire that I'm working with these Latin songs they're for a variety of feasts and occasions throughout the the year so they're not specifically for Christmas but there is this connection both in terms of specific songs that get recycled and reused as Christmas carols later on and in fact you can still find them in uh, church hymnals and different denominations um, and then this idea of singing, sort of uh, special songs for special days of the year. That I think is one of the sort of conceptual ways in which the Christmas carol is linked to this earlier repertoire.
0: Uh, What sort of further directions in this analysis of refrain do you see that you opened up by, I guess, centering the refrain as a guiding principle for research?
1: Oh, thank you. So I think there's a couple ways that I I think about this idea of of what I have done with The Refrain and how it does open up new avenues of thought or analysis. One of the things that I I sort of implicitly address in the book is how we think about specifically Latin song in the Middle Ages in the first place, the things that we think it does and who we think performs them. And for me, one of the important things was to think about the interpretive value of this repertoire for people who sang them and wrote them down and copied them. And that's something that hadn't really been done, especially for this this repertoire. There's really excellent work on Latin song by scholars like Anzue Marne, Mark Everest and many others. Um, Andreas Haug, for example, Rachel golden. I mean, there's lots of musicologists who are working on Latin song and doing really interesting things with it. And so I wanted to intervene and add my own kind of <laughs> um, book length footnote to all of these discussions that are happening and try to say something even more that connects musical form and poetic form with cultural meaning and cultural function and to think about the ways in which this song this song repertoire was, a living, breathing, evolving kind of thing in medieval Europe um, that had a lot of meaning for the people who sang them and who listened to them um, sometimes on an annual basis, for example. Um, And this is also for me personally uh, this book has opened up uh, new networks of scholars who are also working on Latin song and thinking about it in new theoretical and interpretive ways. And so my colleague, Anzuer evyan for example, and I have uh, are co-editing a volume on Latin song, not just Latin songs with refrains, but Latin song more generally. And in that edited volume, we have contributors who are going to think about things like uh, like gender, like rhetoric, transmission, performance um counterfacture sound voice all these kind of interesting theoretical ideas uh that are going to be interwoven with scholarship on latin song so that's one of the future directions that this book i think has for me started
0: so i guess one last question before we go and you kind of i guess uh foreshadowed it any other future projects that you have
1: yeah, I did force out of that. So I have this edited book collection or edited, uh, edited um, book with Ryan Rianmarn that we're working on now, which we expect will be um, coming out sometime in probably 2024. Um, I'm also working on a second book project, which has some connections, uh, slight connections to this book, Devotional Refrains and Medieval Latin Song, in that I'm focusing on a, a saint who actually does appear in the book a couple times, St. Nicholas. And so in the second book project, I'm thinking about critical hagiography in relation to music and thinking about the role of song, not in this sort of uh, the sense that I do in this first book, but rather in terms of uh, hagiography and the ways in which communities venerated certain saints and how they did so using music. So that's that's the project I'm working on now. So some links to this first project, um, but also moving into slightly different directions.
0: So I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for the interview.
1: Thank you, David, so much.